You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, that was so great seeing those guys up here this morning, hearing from them, knowing what they chose that they wanted to take with them. Praise the Lord. I'm going to talk about them again in just a moment, but were you not blessed? I felt almost transported before the throne of God with the music this morning. It's just been beautiful. I was thinking how connected it all is to the, to the sermon, and David is responsible for a lot of that. The Holy Spirit superintends the whole thing. But in Revelation 4 and 5, where probably this, the inspiration for this song came, the throne of God. In chapter 4 of Revelation, you see this scene where there's smoke and the sea of glass, which you may think of as a beautiful, uh, appealing, aesthetically appealing thing. But the sea in Scripture always indicates or denotes distance. So there's a distance between God and those who are worshiping Him. And then in chapter 5, these words, And between the throne... And the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, he came out into the people, to the, to the beings, The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the the scroll and open its seals. There you go. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And they fell down saying thousands and thousands of voices saying. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. And honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. You will see all of this come together in the message today. What a a day of so many connections. I feel such an affinity with these graduating guys. I mean, just like them, I'm very shy. I have a deep voice, just like all of those. Oh, hello, I'm... They're all, and it's that time of life where you think about a gap year, you know. (laughs) But I'm not taking it intentionally. It's just kind of coming on me. Well, I want to say thank you to Ted McKinney last week for preaching. He did an awesome job. Allison and I were listening to Ted somewhere around Delaware, Maryland, on our way home from Pennsylvania where we were at a wedding, the wedding of Joel Rader, Mike, and Sarah Rader's son. Now, Mike will be here next week, as Jeff mentioned in the announcements. And what you need to know about the potluck, sorry, Jeff, 
But the one thing, you do not have to register. We just want you to let us know what you're bringing so we'll know what to have more of. Please stay for the potluck next week. If you come to the first service, go take a break, get some coffee or something, and come back for the potluck. This is the first time we've done this in many years. We get to get to be together around food and I just want to make sure there are plenty of deviled eggs. That's all that's all I ask for. Fried chicken would be nice as well, but if we've got the other, it'll be good. And then also uh, Joya, I don't know if we'll be able to get Joya to speak or not, but if we can get her up here to, to honor her, she's graduating here this year, but then she's got to go back to uh, Italy and take another year of high school. Five years of high school in Italy, three years of college. So, you know, which that, that makes sense, doesn't it? And when you think about it. Well, here's the question. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Make sure, by the way, you take a look before the potluck, okay? Not after the potluck. You might want to do that this week. Do you see... An expert, a pretender, a looker, not a looker, a winner, a loser, self-assured or neurotic, successful or a failure. Do you spend too much Time in front of the mirror, metaphorically speaking, or not enough time, maybe. From a spiritual perspective, do you see yourself as a committed believer or in the not a fanatic category? Are you on fire for Jesus or hanging on by your spiritual fingernails? Is your focus straight ahead or are you easily distracted? Do you wish these questions would go on for another 10 minutes, or is that enough? Yeah, I figured that would be enough. When we began the book of 1 Corinthians, on the first Sunday of May, we became acquainted with God's view of us when we repent of our sins and trust Christ alone for redemption. When the Lord looks at us, he sees Jesus. He's pleased. He sees us as perfect. And we will be presented guiltless on the day of judgment or, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul told the Corinthians right at the beginning of his letter, those first nine verses of chapter 1. The following Sunday in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 25, Paul didn't waste any time jumping in to chastise the church members at Corinth for lining up behind personalities and measuring themselves against others. Our group is better than your group. Our vision is better than your vision. In fact, if you'll think about it, you'll have to admit, we are the creme de la creme of the Corinth church. Paul's correction led them to focus on the cross. Come to the foot of the cross. That's where we're all equal. This morning, we're going to finish the first chapter of 1 Corinthians 1. Our text is going to be verses 26 through 31. 
And in this text, Paul will point to the low social status of many of the church members at the time God saved them. The ways of God are different from the ways of the world. And so therefore, sometimes we, we don't fully get what God is doing. And we think, oh, I know how God wants me to serve him. And we start off and we find that we're moved to another place path. Uh, Look, I I probably say this too much, um, but oftentimes the best history books are really big, thick tomes usually. And more often than not, the first 100 to 150 pages or so are just about the boringest thing you've ever read in your life. But then when you get to the really compelling stuff, you realize, wait a minute, I wouldn't have any clue of how to process all of this without having gone through that one to two hundred pages of a pretty boring foundation being laid. I'm telling you this to ask for your patience as the foundation for 1 Corinthians is being laid for the rest of the book and as the groundwork that is necessary even for today's text. Uh, There is profound application in 1 Corinthians and at the end even of this message, although perhaps I should say, better say, there is profound understanding to be gained. But if we understand God's word, it will lead us to better behavior without six steps for a better this or that that is so common in our world today. Knowing the truth, Jesus said, Will what? Set you free. If we believe that who we are influences who, what we do, then this is an important message about our identity in Christ. Since American believers are conditioned to employ individual verses or short passages for the purpose of making life work. You know, so often we live in a There's a verse for that. I got you covered here. Oh, yeah, all you have to do is go to Philippians 4.13. Remember we talked about how terribly out of context I can do all things with Christ is, is made in our world today. But all of us are tempted to live that way rather than seeking over time. You don't get it overnight, but over time, learning the whole and understanding the major themes of Scripture and how it works in our lives. So since that's the way we're conditioned, sometimes it's important to understand what God is not saying in a text so that we can begin to understand what He is saying. So therefore, here are three Guidelines for understanding today's text. And this first point is half the sermon, I think. Paul is not, in this text, making a case against knowledge or its use in witnessing or preaching, which essentially are the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 1 through 4, actually. So he's not making this case Against knowledge, Paul himself employs masterful rhetoric in making his case for the cross. His point is that we should not trust in rhetoric to either affirm ourselves or achieve self-centered ends. 
God does not operate the way the world operates. And we'll be reminded of this throughout eternity as we see a lamb that was slain. Second, well, wait a minute. Let me talk about this a little bit. You, You might get the idea, as we will read in just a few minutes, that Paul is saying that God only saves and uses the poor and uneducated and those who are weak. That's not the point that Paul was making. Jeff covered that very well in his Introduction of the the graduating guys. Paul used rhetorical devices to encourage his readers to be more, not to be more excited about the form than the content. Okay, it sounds very good what you're saying. It sounds very flowery. But look, we're not about the way it sounds. We're about the message itself of the cross. And God delights in accomplishing his plans By unconventional means through those who you would not expect to have leading roles. Why? So that God will receive the glory. And if we're tempted to think, hey, wait a minute. That's not... Do you see the problem? We are not built to handle glory that belongs only to God. So his ways are merciful toward us. It's merciful that he uses us in the ways that he does. The second guiding principle for understanding this text is this. The first two chapters of 1 Corinthians lay a foundation for many issues that will be addressed later. Both foundation and application will become clearer as we make our way through Paul's letter. Uh, So many times I've wanted to say, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 or in chapter 11, over and over I want to say that. The difference between the first chapter of 1 Corinthians and the foundation that the history books lay lay down for us is is that it's not boring. In fact, this message is central to the entire story, that storyline that goes all the way through Scripture, creation, fall. Cross, redemption, restoration. It's central to everything we do. Everything that we are and everything that we do. Even though some of the verses might cause us to say, I'm not sure I fully get that. Uh, I will encourage you, hang on. It will make sense as we go. I promise. Third. The underlying theme of these two chapters seems to be our need to embrace the same humility that sent Jesus to the cross. For that is the place where God's power is saving us. In context, the Corinthians were acting just like the world, shouting one another down, saying, Our vision is better than your vision. Paul said, essentially, stop that. And he didn't say, you're better than that. He said, you're not as smart as you think you are. So what was the point of standing before the mirror at the beginning of the message? The point was and is to move away from the mirror and move toward the cross. Where we will... we will find everything we have desired and more 
Although the cross is never an easy choice. We must come to Jesus if we come in humility. So our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. I will ask you if you would to please stand as God's word is being read. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standard, standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing Things that are, so that no one, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Many of the things that are expressed around the throne when we're praising Jesus. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. I know that many of you take your spiritual responsibilities before the Lord very seriously. Did you ever expect to be where you are today? Did you ever expect the Lord to use you in the ways that he has chosen to use you? Or do you kind of look back like Doc Brown and back to the future and say, Amazing! I can't believe, I can't believe what the Lord has done. Notice in verse 26 that Paul said, Not many of you were wise, powerful, or of noble birth at the time of your conversion. He didn't say, not any of you. I, I came across this a couple of times when I was preparing for this message, but Lady Huntington, who was an 18th century British countess, said, I was saved by an M. Not many were of noble birth. She was. We know that there were several elites in the Corinth church to which Paul was writing. So there must be more to what he was saying than, it, than we see at first blush. You've probably heard the phrase, well I'm sure you have, that a person should not get too big for his britches. My dad used to tell me at times, boy I'm going to take the starch out of your britches. My dad talked a lot about britches. I don't, I, I don't. But the point is well taken, is it not? Uh, it's the same as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, 3, immediately before writing about the spiritual gifts that are given to all church members. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we'll learn later. I can't resist it. I don't have it in the notes, but I can't resist saying that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we're going to learn that spiritual gifts are not about us. They're about serving the body. It's not about, hey, look at me. It's about what can I do to serve 
the body. And it's also true if pride goes before, a destru- before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, then it's a mercy for God to use those who were humble to accomplish his purposes. Staying humble is the challenge. In verses 30 and 31 of 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul shows us that this has always been God's pattern. Not only on the cross has Jesus shown his willingness to humble himself and bear our shame so that we might have life, but we find abundant life as we linger near the cross and we take up our own cross and follow him. In Christ, we have all the riches imaginable, no matter our status in the world. In verse 31, Paul quotes from the Old Testament when he says, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So where exactly is this written? Paul says it's written. Where is it written? It's in Jeremiah 9.24. I'm going to guess that many of you are familiar with Jeremiah 9.23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast. Boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Just like Paul would say in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast in anything other than in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Why should a wise man not boast or trust in his wisdom when in fact, as Jeff mentioned this morning, God encourages us to discover, develop, and employ Wisdom, the perfect balance, Jeff talked about. Knowledge, wisdom, all of it, how it works together. The difference, of course, is between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. God's wisdom always comes to us through an understanding, a knowledge and understanding of his word, how he reveals himself to us in his word. It is vital to pray and ask for God's guidance when we come to times that require wisdom in decision-making. But our prayer should be for discernment, and discernment comes from the Holy Spirit as he gives us knowledge and understanding of God's ways that we find in Scripture. When our children are small, what do we tell them? When we're going to a place and there are going to be other adults there and they don't know how to act. What do we say? You watch me do what I do. Everything will be okay. Right? Just do what I do. Uh, I saw one time a television show where that didn't work out so well. It was the Three Stooges. (laughs) And uh, 
you know, there was this German ambassador in the room, and he said, I'm going to watch him, and he watched Curly, and so he's flipping, you know, he's getting butter and stabbing the peas and flipping peas and catching them with his mouth, so the whole room is doing that. But there's a great benefit to imitation. It's far better to just know, right? As you grow, you get older, you get better understanding. You don't tell. These guys are probably going out for lunch today with their families. They're probably not going to say, now Tristan, watch me do what I do, okay? We don't want you to embarrass us here at Zaxby's. <laughs> It'd be hard to embarrass your folks. But because he knows. He knows what to do now. And that's the way the Lord builds his wisdom in us through his word. Man's wisdom comes from his knowledge of the world and his own reasoning. And the world shifts all the time, right? The world is constantly moving. So you have to move with it. That's one of the big problems of what you did 23 years ago. You said this, you're out. Really, is there no place for growth in our world? It's occasionally, this wisdom, this worldly wisdom, is occasionally accompanied by a degree of understanding of how God works in certain situations. In fact, if there's not some wisdom from the Lord, the world doesn't really work at all. Some people know just enough Bible to make them dangerous. The problem with worldly wisdom is that we're never wise enough. Worldly wisdom, the kind that does not take God's sovereignty into account, will fail us in the end. Godly wisdom, on the other hand, begins with the foundation of trusting God for all things. And knowing that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher. They're so much higher than ours. And even though this did not go at all like I planned for it to go. God knows best. It's not easy. So a wise man should not trust in his worldly wisdom. Nor should a powerful person trust in his position of influence to attain his goals. Why? Well, commentary in scripture. Jeremiah doesn't answer it, but it's everywhere. Psalm 75 verses 5 to 7 tells us that none of us are, power, are as powerful as we think we are. We don't have the kind of influence that we think we do. We may have a lot, but it's going to pass. To those of you, to those of us, who were so concerned about the direction of, our po of the politics in our day. Do we really think that we are the ones that God has anointed to save the nation? From itself? Just think about that in our relationship with God. Does God save us from ourselves? No, he saves us from himself. His righteous wrath must punish sin, but he sent Jesus to the cross to save us 
from his wrath because of his love. We kid ourselves if we think that our power, our might, as, a, as an individual, as a church, as a nation even, is going to be the end all in our day. I think it's not only a privilege that we have, we have a responsibility to participate in this democratic nation in which the Lord has placed us in this time. But we're kidding ourselves if we think any person or political movement is a worthy object of our ultimate hope. Furthermore, to engage the culture with a harsh spirit is to miss the point of righteousness altogether. As we will see along the way, if there is to be corrective instruction from God, if it is given to brothers and sisters in the church, the world is going to be the world. And we can pray for God to work through us, but we are called to be gentle and patient with those outside the church. And if you think, well, Jesus was pretty, he was, yes, to religious people who thought they were good enough. And frankly, most people interested in politics today, it has become a religion. I get all that. But there, the cross is what divides humanity. Not specific policies. Make sure that you're pointing to the cross. Let not the mighty man or the temporary political party in power. The political party temporarily in power. Boast in his might. And let not the rich man boast in his riches. If there is one thing that... I am sure will make my life better. The thinking has always been. It is more money. But there is no security in riches. Just ask Job. Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Now look, Proverbs frankly Tells us how to become rich and how not to be controlled by our finances. But if you pursue it with everything in you, if your goal is to have more and more and more, and, and enough is just a little bit more, if it's always that way, then that's your God. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When, you light, when your eyes light on it, <clears throat> on the riches, remember the Geico eyes looking at the cash? When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. If your retirement plan is dependent on the stock market, and whose is not, you already understand this, don't you? History is replete with examples of the foolishness of trusting in money and putting your hope that your money is going to carry you through everything. But we often must learn life's 
toughest lessons from experience. And what a shame. My, my brother-in-law used to say, experience is expensive and wise is the person who buys it secondhand. Even better, learn wisdom from God's word. Knowing God through Jesus and knowing God's ways is the Holy Spirit that we'll be talking about a lot in this, this book, even in the next chapter. As the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of Scripture, knowing God through Jesus will direct us to the cross where we will find all we need in Jesus. So do you see how Paul's thoughts in 1 Corinthians 1... Go back to Jeremiah chapter 9. And when he says, so instead of putting your trust in all of these things. As it is written, let the one who boast, boast in the Lord. <laughs> in Jesus. It's asking a lot of 21st century Americans to relinquish confidence in the conventional wisdom of the particular tribe to which they belong. To give up their political influence and social media presence and refuse, and I'm not saying those things are wrong in the, of themselves, but if they're your God, you gotta get away, you gotta burn it, throw it in the fire. Refuse to anchor their security in possessions and/or bank accounts. It's a big, it's a big ask, it's a big task. It's really not an ask, though, it's a command. God does not call us to sacrifice, however, without reward. In exchange for our sacrifice, we gain Jesus, who is to us. Look at what we've given up and look at what we gain. Wisdom from God. Righteousness. Sanctification. And redemption. Amen. Three challenges that come from an understanding of our text, beginning with this. Rejoice that God's favor is on you, even in your weakness. So this was a lot easier writing than saying what I'm going to say. But I'm going to be honest. This sermon has challenged my pride like very few sermons that I have preached have. When I think back to where I was when I was saved, I cannot help but rejoice that God looked down upon a pitiful soul and saved him and snatched him from the path that leads to destruction. I was so close to the edge of the cliff and the Lord pulled me back and set me on a different path, steadied my ways. When I think of where I am right now, and I read these verses, I'm tempted to say, Hey, now I've worked hard to get where I am. I know this is sinful pride making me think more highly of myself than I ought to think. Religion drives us to be better. And surely we all want to grow in every area of our lives. God only comes, though, to those who refuse to depend on themselves for salvation and for sanctification. The cry of the world might be, but I don't need to be saved. I talk to plenty of people like that. Oh, but you do. You do. And deep down, you know that that is true. 
Fortunately, you're not required to save yourself. God has descended to you and will meet you at the cross. Not only that, he invites you, he draws you to himself. Adolf Koberly said this, quote, How does Jesus differ fundamentally from all others who have been founders of some form of religion? He does not give directions for the purification of the soul like those found in all the mystery religions. He does not point man to creative springs within his own soul that he might somehow find devotion to God. He does not make wisdom and virtue conditions of fellowship with him. Just the opposite is true. He eats with sinners. Close quote. So think back to when you were saved. Not only when you were saved, think about the worst thing you did this past week. Or think about the worst thing you have ever done in your life. And then imagine Jesus appearing within minutes and saying, friend, I would like to dine with you. It's our Savior. He dines with us, but He died for us. When you can see yourself as a sinner, you will rejoice that God pursued you in your weakness and loved you enough to send Jesus to die for you. And such rejoicing will lead to you to renounce the stress of seeking to be good enough in the world's eyes and to rest in God's delight in you through Jesus. Does God's word call us to a pursuit of excellence? Yeah. Yes, it does. To the glory of God. Our desire for success, though, is far too often driven by a need that seeks to address the insecurities that imprison us by the fear that we might not be good enough. How many of us work our ways, way through life just hoping that people won't find out who we really are or, or maybe more accurately, who we really are not? Paul was putting it on the Corinthians in a fairly strong manner in this chapter. But after struggling with my own pride the way that I have this week in wrestling with this text, I understand why this level of rebuke is necessary to us. As Rich Mullins sang years ago, surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. And then hold me, Jesus. I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? If you're younger and you don't know Rich Mullins, he's, he transcends the years. You've got to listen to songs, which is essentially his greatest hit, so he would not call it that, which is probably why it's called songs. 
There was a lot of rejoicing in my early years as a believer. Now I find myself in need of a fair amount of renouncing. The Lord is gracious to give me a glimpse, not only of who I was, but who I am right now without Jesus, apart from the cross. I remember that he does not treat me as my sins deserve. And I'm grateful. In giving up my efforts to be good enough in the world's eyes, I find that Jesus delights in me. Just as I am because I am in him. And he is in me. I hope the same is true for you. And that you were led finally to renew your commitment to boast only in Jesus. We're going to boast about something, right? Hurricane smothering defense, right? Our favorite whatever. Everywhere in Scripture, and I mean everywhere in Scripture, we find that our greatest affection must be for our Creator and Redeemer and that the believer's boast needs to be in the Lord, more specifically in Jesus, more specifically still in the cross of Christ. It's difficult to boast in Jesus because... To do so is to invite the scorn and ire of those who are offended by the cross. And many are offended by the cross. But it's at the cross though. That we find true love and acceptance and purpose in a world that stands ready to condemn others. For their own benefit and peace of mind. It is our privilege brothers and sisters. In such a world, to bear the cross that the Lord has given us to bear. And thus point others to Jesus. Let's pray. To rest solely in the Lord's acceptance and affection seems too much to ask of a needy and insecure soul until it is the only relief available. You know what that's like, don't you? You expend every resource available to you and then one day you find, I got nothing (laughs) at that place. We will find our Savior to be more than enough. Far better to believe now, to give Him our trust now in this time of prosperity and ease than to wait until we have no option. But the beautiful thing is that when Jesus is all we have, we will find Him more than enough. Father, we yield ourselves to you. What more is there to be said or even prayed? 
We sit before you grateful, humble, eager to take up our cross and follow you. May we not look to the right or the left. May we look straight ahead. Pray especially for these graduates. This is the time. This is the time where the voices are going to come at them. In ways that they've never experienced before. Lord may they. Look at Jesus cross. And may they pick up their own cross. Deny themselves and follow you. May it be true of all of us. It's in the name of the one who died. And in whom we find life. Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.